Chapter Thirty Three of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Thirty Three The Strange Interview, The Chase Through the Hall. It was with the most melancholy aspect that anything human could well bear that Sir Francis Varney took his lonely walk, although perhaps in saying so much, probably we are instituting a comparison which circumstances scarcely empower us to do. For who shall say that singular man, around whom a very atmosphere of mystery seemed to be perpetually increasing, was human? Averse as we are to believe in the supernatural, or even to invest humanity with any preternatural powers, the more singular facts and circumstances surrounding the existence and the acts of that man bring to the mind a kind of shuddering conviction that if he be indeed really mortal, he still must possess some powers beyond ordinary mortality, and be walking the earth for some unhallowed purposes such as ordinary men with ordinary attributes of human nature can scarcely guess at. Silently and alone he took his way through that beautiful tract of country, comprehending such picturesque charms of hill and dale which lay between his home and Bannerworth Hall. He was evidently intent upon reaching the latter place by the shortest possible route, and in the darkness of that night, for the moon had not yet risen, he showed no slight acquaintance with the intricacies of that locality, that he was at all enabled to pursue so undeviatingly a track as that which he took. He muttered frequently to himself low, indistinct words as he went, and chiefly did they seem to have reference to that strange interview he had so recently had with one who, from some combination of circumstances scarcely to be guessed at, evidently exercised a powerful control over him, and was enabled to make a demand upon his pecuniary resources of rather startling magnitude. And yet, from a stray word or two which were pronounced more distinctly, he did not seem to be thinking in anger over that interview, but it would appear that it rather had recalled to his remembrance circumstances of a painful and a degrading nature, which time had not been able entirely to obliterate from his recollection. Yes, yes, he said as he paused upon the margin of the wood, to the confines of which he, or what seemed to be he, had once been chased by Marchdale and the Bannerworths. Yes, the very sight of that man recalls all the frightful pageantry of a horrible tragedy, which I can never, never forget. Never can it escape my memory as a horrible, a terrific fact. But it is the sight of this man alone that can recall all its fearful minutiae to my mind, and paint to my imagination, in the most vivid colors, every, the least peculiar connected with that time of agony. These periodical visits much affect me, for months I dread them, and for months I am but slowly recovering from the shocks they give me. But once more, he says, but once more, and then we shall not meet again. Well, well, perchance, before that time arrives, I may be able to possess myself of those resources which will enable me to forestall his visit, and so at least free myself from the pang of expecting him. He paused at the margin of the wood, and glanced in the direction of Bannerworth Hall. By the dim light which yet showed from out the light sky, 
He could discern the ancient gable ends and turret-like windows. He could see the well-laid-out gardens and the grove of stately firs that shaded it from the northern blasts. And, as he gazed, a strong emotion seemed to come over him, such as no one could have supposed would for one moment have possessed the frame of one so apparently unconnected with all human sympathies. "'I know this spot well,' he said, "'and my appearance here on that eventful occasion when the dread of my approach induced a crime only second to murder itself was on such a night as this.' when all was so still and calm around, and when he who at the merest shadow of my presence rather chose to rush on death than be assured it was myself. Curses on the circumstances that so foiled me. I should have been most wealthy. I should have possessed the means of commanding the adulation of those who now hold me but cheaply. But still the time may come. I have a hope yet, and that greatness which I have ever panted for, that magician-like power over my kind, which the possession of ample means alone can give, may yet be mine. Wrapping his cloak more closely around him, he strode forward with that long, noiseless step which was peculiar to him. Mechanically he appeared to avoid those obstacles of hedge and ditch which impeded his pathway. Surely he had come that road often, or he would not so easily have pursued his way. And now, he stood by the edge of a plantation which, in some measure, protected from trespassers the more private gardens of the hall, and there he paused, as if a feeling of irresolution had come over him, or it might be, as indeed it seemed from his subsequent conduct, that he had come without any fixed intention, or, if with a fixed intention, without any regular plan of carrying it into effect. Did he again dream of intruding into any of the chambers of that mansion with the ghastly aspect of that terrible creation with which, in the minds of its inhabitants, he seemed to be but too closely identified? He was pale, attenuated, and trembled. Could it be that so soon it had become necessary to renew the lifeblood in his veins in the awful manner which it is supposed the vampire brood are compelled to protract their miserable existence? It might be so and that he was even now reflecting upon how once more he could kindle the fire of madness in the brain of that beautiful girl who he had already made so irretrievably wretched. He leant against an aged tree, and his strange, lustrous-looking eyes seemed to collect every wandering scintillation of light that was around, and to shine with preternatural intensity. "'I must, I will,' he said, "'be master of Bannerworth Hall. "'It must come to that.' I have set an existence upon its possession, and I will have it. And then, if with my own hands I displace it brick by brick and stone by stone, I will discover that hidden secret which no one but myself now dreams of. It shall be done by force or fraud, by love or by despair, I care not which. The end shall sanctify all means. I, even if I walk through blood to my desire, I say it shall be done. There was a holy and a still calmness about the night, much at variance with the storm of angry passion that appeared to be momentarily gathering power in the breast of that fearful man. Not the least sound came from Bannerworth Hall, and it was only occasionally that from afar off in the night air came the bark of some watchdog or the low of distant cattle. All else was mute save when the deep sepulchral tones of that man, if man he was, 
gave an impulse to the soft air around him. With a strolling movement, as if he were careless if he proceeded in that direction or not, he still went onward toward the house, and now he stood by that little summer house, once so sweet and so dear a retreat, in which the heart-stricken Flora had held her interview with him whom she loved with a devotion unknown to meaner minds. This spot scarcely commanded any view of the house, for so enclosed was it among evergreens and blooming flowers that it seemed like a very wilderness of nature, upon which, with liberal hand, she had showered down in wild luxuriance her wildest floral beauties. In and around that spot the night air was loaded with sweets. The mingled perfume of many flowers made that place seem a very paradise. But, oh, how sadly at variance with that beauty the contentedness of nature was he who stood amid such beauty. All incapable as he was of appreciating its tenderness or of gathering the faintest moral from its glory. "'Why am I here?' he said here, without fixed design or stability of purpose, like some miser who has hidden his own hoard so deeply within the bowels of the earth he cannot hope he shall ever again be able to bring them to the light of day. I hover around this spot which I feel, which I know, contains my treasure, though I cannot lay my hands upon it or exult in its glistening beauty. Even as he spoke, he cowered down like some guilty thing, for he heard a fair footstep upon the garden path. So light, so fragile was the step, that in the light of day the very hum of summer insects would have drowned the noise. But he heard it, that man of crime, of unholy and awful impulses. He heard it, and he shrunk down among the shrubs and flowers till he was hidden completely from observation amid a world of fragrant essences. Was it someone stealthily in that place even as he was, unwelcome or unknown? Or was it one who had observed him intrude upon the privacy of those now unhappy precincts, and who was coming to deal upon him that death which, vampire though he might be, he was yet susceptible of from mortal hands? The footstep advanced, and lower down he shrunk until his coward heart beat against the very earth itself. He knew that he was unarmed, a circumstance rare with him, and only to be accounted for by the disturbance of his mind consequent upon the visit of that strange man to his house, those presents had awakened so many conflicting emotions. Nearer and nearer still came that light footstep, and his deep-seated fears would not let him perceive that it was not the step of caution or of treachery, but owned its lightness to the natural grace and freedom of movement of its owner. The moon must have arisen, although obscured by clouds, through which it cast but a dim radiance, for the night had certainly grown lighter, so that although there were no strong shadows cast, a more diffused brightness was about all things, and their outlines looked not so dancing and confused the one with the other. He strained his eyes in the direction whence the sounds proceeded, and then his fears for his personal safety vanished for he saw it was a female form that was slowly advancing towards him. His first impulse was to rise, for with the transient glimpse he got of it, he knew that it must be Flora Bannerworth. But a second thought, probably one of intense curiosity to know what could possibly have brought her to such a spot at such a time, restrained him, and he was quiet. But if the surprise of Sir Francis Varney was great to see Flora Bannerworth at such a time in such a place, we have no doubt that with the knowledge which our readers have of her, their astonishment would more than fully equal his. 
and when we come to consider that since that eventful period when the sanctity of her chamber had been so violated by that fearful midnight visitant, it must appear somewhat strange that she could gather courage sufficient to wander forth alone at such an hour. Had she no dread of meeting that unearthly being? Did the possibility that she might fall into his ruthless grasp not come across her mind with a shuddering consciousness of its probability? Had she no reflection that each step she took was taking her further and further from those who would aid her in all extremities? It would seem not, for she walked onward, unheeding and apparently unthinking of the presence possible, or probable, of that bane of her existence. But let us look at her again. How strange and spectral-like she moves along. There seems no speculation in her countenance, but with a strange and gliding step, she walks like some dim shadow of the past in that ancient garden. She is very pale, and on her brow there is the stamp of suffering. Her dress is a morning robe, she holds it lightly around her, and thus she moves forward towards that summer-house which probably to her was sanctified by having witnessed those vows of pure affection which came from the lips of Charles Holland, about whose fate there now hung so great a mystery. Has madness really seized upon the brain of that beautiful girl? Has the strong intellect really sunk beneath the oppression to which it has been subjected? Does she now walk forth with a disordered intellect, the queen of some fantastic realm, viewing the material world with eyes that are not of earth, shunning perhaps that which she should have sought, and, perchance, in her frenzy, seeking that which in a happier frame of mind she would have shunned? Such might have been the impression of any one who had looked upon her for a moment, and who knew the disastrous scenes through which she had so recently passed but we can spare our readers the pangs of such a supposition. We have bespoken their love for Flora Bannerworth, and we are certain that she has it. Therefore would we spare them, even for a few brief moments. From imagining that cruel destiny had done its worst, and that the fine and beautiful spirit we have so much commended had lost its power of rational reflection. No, thank heaven such is not the case. Flora Bannerworth is not mad, but under the strong influence of some eccentric dream, which has pictured to her mind images which have no home but in the airy realms of imagination. She has wandered forth from her chamber to that sacred spot where she had met him she loved, and heard the noblest declaration of truth and constancy that ever flowed from human lips. Yes, she is sleeping, but with a precision such as the somnambulist so strangely exerts, she trod the well-known path slowly but surely towards the summer's bower, where her dreams had not told her lay crouching that most hideous specter of her imagination, Sir Francis Varney. He who stood between her and her heart's best joy, he who had destroyed all hope of happiness, and who had converted her dearest affections into only so many causes of greater disquietude than the blessings they should have been to her. Oh, could she have imagined but for one moment that he was there! With what an eagerness of terror would she have flown back again to the shelter of those walls, where at least was to be found some protection from the fearful vampire's embrace, and where she would be within hail of friendly hearts, who would stand boldly between her and every thought of harm. But she knew it not, 
and onward she went until the very hem of her garment touched the face of Sir Francis Varney. And he was terrified. He dared not move. He dared not speak. The idea that she had died, and that this was her spirit, came to wreak some terrible vengeance upon him, for a time possessed him, and so paralyzed with fear was he that he could neither move nor speak. It had been well if, during that trance of indecision in which his coward heart placed him, Flora had left the place, and again sought her home. But unhappily, such an impulse came not over her. She sat upon that rustic seat, where she had reposed when Charles had clasped her to his heart, and through her very dream of remembrance of that pure affection came across her, and in the tenderest and most melodious accents she said, Charles! Charles, and do you love me still? No, no, you have not forsaken me. Save me, save me from the vampire. She shuddered, and Sir Francis Varney heard her weeping. Fool that I am, he muttered, to be so terrified. She sleeps. This is one of the phases which a disordered imagination oft puts on. She sleeps, and perchance this may be an opportunity of further increasing the dread of my visitation, which shall make Bannerworth Hall far too terrible a dwelling place for her. And well I know, if she goes, they will all go. It will become a deserted house, and that is what I want. A house, too, with such an evil reputation that none but myself, who have created that reputation, will venture within its walls a house which superstition will point out as the abode of spirits, a house, as it were, by general opinion, ceded to the vampire. Yes, it shall be my own, fit dwelling place for a while for me. I have sworn it shall be mine, and I will keep my oath, little such as I have to do with vows. He rose and moved slowly to the row entrance of the summer-house, a movement he could make without at all disturbing Flora, for the rustic seat on which she sat was at its furthest extremity. And there he stood, the upper part of his gaunt and hideous form clearly defined upon the now much lighter sky, so that if Flora Bannerworth had not been in that trance of sleep in which she really was one glance upward, would let her see the hideous companion she had in that one much-loved spot, a spot hitherto sacred to the best and noblest feelings, but now doomed forever to be associated with that terrific specter of despair. But she was in no state to see so terrible a sight. Her hands were over her face, and she was weeping still. "'Surely he loves me,' she whispered. "'He has said he loved me, and he does not speak in vain. "'He loves me still, and I shall again look upon his face, a heaven to me. "'Charles, Charles, you will come again?' Surely they sin against the divinity of love who would tell me that you love me not. Ha! muttered Varney. This passion is her first and takes a strong hold on her young heart. She loves him, but what are human affections to me? I have no right to count myself in a great muster-roll of humanity. I look not like an inhabitant of the earth, and yet am of it. I love no one, expect no love from anyone, but I will make humanity a slave to me, and the lip-service of them who hate me in their hearts shall be as pleasant jingling music to my ears, 
as if it were quite sincere. I will speak to this girl. She is not mad. Perchance she may be. There was a diabolical look of concentrated hatred upon Varney's face as he now advanced two paces towards the beautiful Flora. End of chapter 33 Recording by Roger Moline